For scripture reading, uh, please turn with me to Hebrews 12. I'll be reading 1 through 11. Um, I'll be reading from ESV. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short times, as it seems best to them. But he disciplined us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And now turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4 for our sermon this morning. My latest title for this message is Marks of True Faith. There was a religious scholar from Boston College that wrote a book about a decade ago on the state of religion in our country today. And he did a fairly sweeping review of, of the, the um, different churches across our country and, and visited them and, and examined their doctrine. And he writes from a secular perspective, but in the first chapter he says, American religion has never existed in practice the way it is supposed to exist in theory. American religion has never existed in practice the way it is supposed to exist in theory. And while he was referencing mainline Christianity, the, the question I raise is, is, could he say the same thing about our church today? And as Anabaptists, we've historically embraced a radical faith, a faith that takes the teaching of Jesus and of Scripture seriously. But is the life we live seven days a week consistent with what we say? Is it consistent with the faith that we profess? And do you even know what that faith is that you profess? In who or in what have you placed your faith? And finally, what will faith, which is properly understood and properly expressed, look like? Those are some of the questions I'd like to look at in the, in the message today, and I believe the passage gives us a good summary answer to this question. Hence the title, Marks of True Faith. Let's read this passage, 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 10. 
If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, as we know, this letter is, is written by the Apostle Paul to young Timothy, who was leading the church here at Ephesus. And Paul is, is nearing the end of his ministry and, and will shortly face death for his faith in Christ. But he's concerned that the next generation of leadership continues in the true faith. And this passage is specifically addressed to Timothy as a leader in the church, but its principles can certainly be applied to the rest of believers. And I would note that in, in verse 11, Timothy is instructed to command and teach these things. And so this is ap applicable to the entire church. And I would also note that in our last sermon, we looked at the danger of deceit, and specifically at deceitful spirits and, and false teachings. And so today's sermon is, is kind of the, the inverse of that, the importance of true faith. And this passage demonstrates three aspects of, of true faith that should be present in all of the believers' lives. And these three aspects, or these three marks of true faith, are a learning faith, a living faith, and a laboring faith. So we'll look first at a learning faith. In verse 6, he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So the antidote that he presents to the, to the false teaching that he warns about is not to study and outline every single false teaching that is present, but it's to develop an understanding, a deep and a broad understanding of the truth, an awareness of the truth, so that when false teaching is presented or encountered, we understand that it's false teaching. We've probably all heard the illustration of, of how the FBI trains the people who are experts in, in counterfeit currency, the, the way they learn how to, to do their um, trade is, is to practice handling real money, and, and so that when they, they find that the counterfeit, they, they can recognize it. And the same concept was used when I was in, in school doing medical training. We, we did lots of physical exams on each other and, and practiced listening to heart and lung sounds or doing eye and ear exams on, on people who were healthy so that we could have a, an awareness of, of what normal exams are like. And so when, when something is abnormal, we, we, know what, we know what it is and know what it looks like. So Paul is telling Timothy here to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that he has followed. And I would note that the ESV uses the word train in verse 6 and, and again in verse um, 7 and 8, but it's not the same word that, that's used here in verse 6. The better word is the word nourished, 
which is used in the, the King James. But, but the tense of the word is, is better reflected in the ESV, the, the, the being trained or, or the being nourished. It's an ongoing activity. It's not something that, that has um, been completed in the past. And we know that Timothy was trained in the scriptures from a young age. We see in, in 2 Timothy 3, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so what we know about scripture matters. Paul tells Timothy again in 2 Timothy, do your best to present yourself to want to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so the, the way we handle the word of God, the, the, our knowledge of the word of God is important because if, if we have an incomplete understanding of the story of, of God's plan for man, and then, then we will mishandle it, we will use it incorrectly. And so the content of our faith matters. That, that's the point that, that I'm trying to bring out. We need to know what we believe. If we're putting our faith in the wrong things, it will not nourish us, and our faith will not survive. But this isn't just an academic pursuit of, of biblical trivia. A thorough knowledge of the words of the faith results in good doctrine. And good doctrine basically means that, that set of teachings that we follow, that, that guides the way we live our lives. And the way we live our lives needs to be shaped by the truth of Scripture. And this isn't just for the elders, it's for everybody, and it begins at a young age. And so our families need to be nourished in the words of the faith. Our children need to be saturated with the truths of the faith. And certainly this happens at various levels, either in Sunday school or or our Christian school, but we must not neglect it in our homes. We can't neglect it in our homes and expect the church to do all the training. Fathers have the responsibility in Ephesians to, to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition or the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But while it starts in the home with training our children, it doesn't end with getting a high school or even a college diploma. It's an ongoing journey that every one of us needs to be on. We need to be constantly nourished in the words of the faith. And, and, and part of this is about gaining a better understanding of the story of God, the, the story that God began at creation and that continues now, and so that we have an understanding of our place in God's story. So we need to understand the story of, of fall and redemption from Adam to Noah to Abraham and David. We need to have an awareness of the kingdom of God on earth and of his ministry of reconciliation of all things to himself. We need to have an understanding of our sinfulness and of God's holiness. And, and this all comes from learning about God's truth in his scriptures. And so if, if we're nourished and fed in these faiths, it will affect our perspective of our Monday to Friday work, the way we interact with our neighbors, and the way we interact with those that we worship with on Sundays. But on the other hand, if, if the faith is just a habit you have, if it's just something that you do because you've always done it or because you're expected to do it, and then it's not necessary to be nourished in these words of faith. Your, your faith is already well-defined in its own little box, and, and you really don't need it to interfere with anything else in your life. 
and you'd rather not be bothered to learn anything because it might mess with the little categories and boxes that you've created to manage your life. But if this is your faith, it's not a learning faith. It's an idol, or as the beginning of the chapter calls it, it's deceitful and insincere. But sometimes our faith is stale and, and feels dry and meaningless because we want it that way. We, we really don't expect it to disrupt our lives. But other times, we, we'd like for it to feel more significant, but we, we can't quite make it happen. We wonder what we're doing wrong or what's happening that God doesn't feel close or real or why we feel so empty. But a few comments on that. We know that our feelings are not the source of truth. And just because God feels distant or conversely close, for that matter, does not mean that he is. And so part of the solution to being distant from God, whether it's real or perceived, is to treasure, to partake, and to be nourished be fed in the words of the faith. And if you're just wanting God to speak to you, if you want God to, to speak to your heart, all you need to do is open your Bible. He has spoken. He has revealed himself through the word made flesh and the word made text. And so we have a, a real gift with the written word that, that we need to um, treasure and, and we need to, to make it our, our duty to learn what he tells us about himself. And it's also been interesting during the, the Anabaptist history class that we're listening to in, in our Sunday school hour. He comments that before the Reformation, the Bible wasn't available to the common people, and even the priests spent most of their time studying the doctrines of the church rather than actually studying the Bible. And one of the, the early reformers before the Reformation was, was John Huss, and, and he was a preacher. But when he began seriously studying the Word of God, it transformed his life and it transformed his preaching, and, and he drew great crowds to his, to his church as he preached the word of God. But eventually he was burned at the stake for failing to teach the doctrines of the church. And the comment that, that Walter Beachy made on Huss was that when the Bible is studied sincerely, we encounter God. So a learning faith will be alive, which brings us to our second point, true faith will be a living faith. And let's look at verses 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he says, have nothing to do with. This is a very forceful rejection when we have intentionally studied and grown in our knowledge of what is true, we will recognize what is not true, and we will need to reject and forcefully turn away from the untruth. And this phrase, silly myths, some versions translate it old wives' fables, and it's not necessarily referring to anything in particular. It's kind of just a... a, um, a um, a phrase that, that reflects a bit of sarcasm, actually, on, on the, the silliness of, of some of these myths. And someone suggested it. it's kind of like the, the health advice you might get from your grandmother that, that's really not based in science at all. Things like, if you cross your eyes, then your face will get stuck that way. Or, if you read in a dark room, then, then you'll go blind. It's, it's, you know, 
th th there's absolutely nothing true about that. And, and he's saying pretty much the same thing about falsehood. It, it's ridiculous to, to hold on to that. But he says, instead, train yourself for godliness. And, and this word training comes from the, the same Greek word that we get our word gymnasium from. So it conveys the idea of, of athletic training, of training with, with one's full emotional and physical energy. And we know that the Greeks prized their Olympic Games, and Ephesus was a major Greek city, and, and so the parallels of, of training for godliness were not, were not lost to Timothy. And the literal definition of this root word means to train in the nude or with the bare essentials, and this was done to, to minimize any excess burden on the one exercising. But Paul says that the physical training has little benefit. He doesn't say it has no benefit, and he doesn't say it's a bad thing, but compared to the godliness that he is calling us to, athletic training, physical training, has little value. But before we talk about how we might exercise ourselves to godliness, we should clarify what is meant by the word godliness. One definition put it this way, if the highest attribute of God is his holiness, then the highest attainment of man is to pursue a godlike holiness. Godliness, then, is the heart and soul of spiritual character. And so I think that considering godliness as a character trait can be helpful in thinking about what it is and how to develop it. And if you spend any time around young children, you know that it takes time and energy to develop their character. If we did nothing at all to, to shape their character, we, we would have a bunch of difficult and unpleasant kids around here. But with the training, discipline, and example, even young children can learn basic skills of respect and decency. And godliness is kind of the same way. It's also developed over time with intention and with training. But it's also important to recognize this is not the same as justification, which is the act of God which declares us righteous and forgiven on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ and our faith in him. The, the works that we are called to do are on the basis of our salvation, which has been completed in Christ. But the scriptures do assume that one who has believed in Christ, one who is a believer, will go on to growth and maturity. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And there's a number of verses that we could look at to, to define godliness, but there, there's some familiar ones that I'll just read. Um, we have the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And 2 Peter 1 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. But then he goes on to say, after saying that, that he has granted to us all things, he goes on to say, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and then in sequential fashion says to add knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea with, with developing in godliness is to become fruitful and effective Christians in God's kingdom. So training for godliness is done with a view towards growing our character. And like all training, it, it takes time. There, there's certain goals that we have, and progress, while it may be slow, is expected. Let's take a little closer look at this idea of, of training or exercise. And we know physical exercise is, is one of those things that everybody understands has some value, but nobody quite gets enough of. And every January, gym memberships go up because people are resolving to, to get more exercise. But I see people every day, basically, whose, whose health is in a worse condition than it should be because they fail to exercise. And I saw an interesting quote taken from a medical journal bemoaning that the nation's lack of exercise and their, their increased fascination with spectator sports. And speaking of college sports, they said, quote, the men on the teams are the very ones whom nature has endowed super abundantly with physical capacity, but on them the physical director bends most of his energies, while the average student is left to get his physical development by yelling from the bleachers. And interestingly, this was published in 1905, and I don't think we've gotten any better since then. And in fact, next year, the National Institutes of Health is beginning a $170 million study that lasts for six years and involves 3,000 people. And basically, they're going to take blood, fat, and muscle samples from them before and after they exercise and over the length of the period. And of course, a certain portion of them aren't going to exercise so that they can be the control group. And, and the idea is to, to, to figure out precisely what, what changes in your body um, with, with certain levels of exercise and where those, those changes happen. And, and the basis for the study then is so that you can prescribe exercise to patients with certain maladies and, and you have a scientific reason for, for proving that this particular exercise will help their particular problem. But at, at the end of their six-year, multi-million dollar study, any benefits that they find will still only be good for this life. And that's what Paul says. It has some benefit. And we know that our bodies are the temple of God, and, and we do need to take care of them, and, and we're stewards of God's gifts to us. But godliness, the, the development of our character, the development of qualities that reflects the holiness of God, the ordering of our lives in a way that, that honors God, that has value in every way, it says, both for the present life and also for the life to come. So this, this godliness, this character, this holiness, while it comes from God, must be developed and matured and brought to fruitfulness through our active and intentional involvement in the process. So we can't expect it to grow in our character and to develop in Christ-likeness without our own engagement and sacrifice. It's like expecting an uncontrolled, untrained two-year-old to develop into a, a well-mannered, respectable teenager with absolutely no input while they're growing up. Or like expecting a chubby, wheezing couch potato to win a marathon with no training. And yet, somehow, we find it too easy to let the regular and disciplined training for godliness take a back seat in our own lives when we get busy and expect that by the time we reach our next 
whatever age milestone that we're looking at that, that will reach the maturity level that we assume that we'll, we'll get to. And as we saw in our, in our scripture reading from Hebrews 12, this, this will take effort, this will take um, time, and, and it will involve discipline from the Lord, but it will yield good fruit. So how do we train for godliness? The verse we read from Second Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. So the all things that pertains to godliness comes through the knowledge of him who called us. And so how do we grow in our knowledge of him? Well, we talked about that. It, we, you can read your Bible and spend time in prayer because that, that's how we grow in our knowledge of God. But, but there's additional ways to exercise godliness. There's other character qualities that we can train ourselves in, that, that we can exercise in. So how, how have you trained your kindness or your love or your gentleness or your self-control this week? What, what exercises have you done to, to boost those godly qualities in your life? So for example, you could give up your football game this afternoon or whatever your hobby might be in order to do something nice for your family or your neighbors and you could be training yourself in self-control and love at the same time. In other words, this, this needs to impact your life. This can't just be something that you have your little quiet time with coffee in the morning before breakfast and, and then you, you've trained yourself for godliness. It might start there, but th there's tangible ways that being a godly person and exercising ourselves in godliness will affect the way that we live. And it's no accident that the types of people who engage with their families and with those around them in intentional, loving, godly ways are the people that we look up to as being men and women of character, being men and women of godliness. And those people who don't exercise themselves in love and who pursue only their own dreams and are consumed with their own fulfillment and can't be bothered by the messiness of real life around them, you tend not to think of them as people of character. Which brings us to our final point. True faith is a learning faith, it is a living faith, and finally, true faith is a laboring faith. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And this verse is better understood if we take a minute to look at the meaning of the word toil. Many translations use the word labor or toil, but it's a difficult word to translate, and it can refer to, to different kinds of, of physical or moral suffering or affliction. But in the, in the writings of Josephus, the, the noun form of this word was almost always used with the connotation of excessive fatigue and exhaustion as a result of battle. And a few other places that we see this word in the New Testament, Acts 20:35, "In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He said, "It is more blessed to give than to receive." And in Colossians 1:29, he said, "For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me." So when he says, "We toil." He's referring to labor to the point of, of physical and mental exhaustion. Paul was, was so committed to the work that, that he was doing 
that, that he was giving himself completely to this. And so that there's no room for, for selfish ambition in a leader. But I would mention that there's a difference between toil and, and burnout. And, and the structure of our church leadership needs to be such so that the relief can be given if, if needed, so that the real mental and physical undoing that results from unmanageable and persistent demands will not end up harming the work of the church. But, but the goal is, I think, as the church develops in maturity and godliness, the more the church itself will do the work of ministry, as described in Ephesians 4, and the less it will expect the leaders to do all of it for them. And look briefly at, at the very last phrase of verse 10, God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And there is a bit of controversy about the exact meaning of this phrase, and, and there's basically two different views that, that could be taken. One says that it means that God is um, the, the basically potentially the Savior of all people because he, he died for, for everybody, and, but he's, he's especially or actually the Savior only of those who believe. But that's not exactly what it says. And so another way to, to look at it is to, to have two different understandings of the word salvation or, or two different types of salvation that people experience. And so the one type of salvation would refer to a physical or material action that affects the body. And the other type of salvation is the eternal salvation of the body and soul. And this would be the cons consistent with the contrast that he draws between the physical and, and uh, godly exercise earlier in the chapter. And so for an example of, of physical material salvation, consider Paul's address on, on Mars Hill when he told the men there, God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And in Colossians 1, Paul says that, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So there's a sense in which all people at all times are experiencing God's material salvation, whether they acknowledge it or not, that just the fact that they're alive and, and breathing and, and their brain is, is metabolizing glucose and their heart is pumping blood and the earth is still rotating on its axis, and all of those are, are a direct result of God being actively involved in their world and being their savior. But to those who believe, to those who accept his sacrifice, and to those who put faith in Christ, he is especially their, their savior. He saves them in an additional way through the, the eternal preservation of their soul and their body. And he said, says it is hope that empowers us. Because, because of the hope he has, he is empowered to toil and to strive. And we've all experienced difficulty at, at some point in our lives. And, and the longer and the deeper the difficulty, the, the more important it is to have hope as we continue to struggle with the, the issues. And so sometimes we just take one day at a time, or one step at a time, or one breath at a time. And, and we keep taking the next step because we, we hope, we know that things will get better at some point. And I read a quote that describes hope this way. It says, hope is not something that we do to escape the storm. Hope is what we hold fast to as we endure each wave. 
So we don't have a promise of deliverance from the storms in this, in this life, but our hope is on the living God who will ultimately deliver us. And because we do have hope, we can labor in faith for the maturity of the believers as well as the salvation of sinners. So in conclusion, we, we've discussed three marks of true faith, learning faith, living faith, and laboring faith. And they're probably developed in that order, although hopefully we keep growing in all of these categories. But where is your faith? Have you, in faith, yielded your life to Jesus for participation in his kingdom? Or are you like the Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And so you're just going through the motions of faith, but your faith is in yourself, and you're not living a life of true faith before God or your family and your community. Or are you like the father of the young man who asked Jesus to intervene on his son? I believe, he said, help my unbelief. So no matter where you are, if you're rebelling, pretending, struggling, or maturing, the message of Christ is to all. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we place our faith in Christ and yield our whole self to his lordship, we will grow, he will grow us in a faith that learns, that lives, and that labors, because our confidence is in him. Let's have a song.